0: Uh, what got you there what what got, got, you got you got you got you there with there got you there got you there with Today on what got you there, we are joined got by Amy there? Marin. Got Amy is a licensed got clinical social worker, psychotherapist and lecturer at Northeastern University. She's been dubbed the self-help Guru of the moment by The Guardian and Forbes refers to her as the thought leadership star. Amy is on a mission to make the world a mentally stronger place. Her article, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, was read by over 50 million people. And her book, also called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, is a USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestseller that has been translated into 25 languages. Her TEDx talk, The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, has been viewed over 3 million times, and her articles reach 2 million readers every month. She speaks and lectures across the globe and offers an online course in mental strength. She's a regular contributor to Forbes, Inc. Magazine, and Psychology Today. She also serves as Very Well's parenting teens and discipline expert. She's also a lecturer at Northeastern University. Amy, thank you for joining us on What Got You There. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: So before we dive into your story and everything you're working on, how do you start your day?
1: Um, It really depends. I sort of, I don't have a complete routine. I really like the idea that these days my life is fairly flexible. So if I want to get up and and walk the dog, I can, or if I just want to get up and dive in and get to work, I can do that too. I don't have anything that I do on a consistent basis. I kind of like that.
0: Oh, I love that. And then we were talking pre-show that you are now located in the Florida Keys, correct?
1: Yes, I uh, was living in Maine and um my husband and I both work remotely most of the time, so we decided this is kind of crazy to stay here all all winter when it's sometimes 30 below out, so we said let's do something different. So we decided to um pack up and go to the Florida Keys at least during the winter months.
0: Oh, no, I love that. My wife and I are certainly jealous when we're dealing with the cold <laughs> weather. So glad you're enjoying that. <laughs> So you're someone who created the viral article, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, which has been read by over 50 million people. So I want to discuss that, um, the article, how that all came to fruition. But what led up to you writing that article?
1: Um, Well, I was a therapist and... um had always been interested in the idea of mental strength, but it really, my journey became much more personal. Shortly after I launched my career, my mother passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm and she was only 51 and she was always very healthy. So it was a complete surprise and she and I were very close. And throughout my grief process, it was really about figuring out how do you heal? I know that some people I would see in my therapy office had gone through a loss maybe 20 years ago and they still couldn't talk about it or it really became the defining moment that made the rest of their life not nearly as good as it could be. And, but then I also saw people who would go through these really tough things and they emerged from it stronger. And so I really started for my own personal enrichment, really wanted to figure out what what the difference was and how some people... Could go through tough times and become better rather than growing bitter. And a few years down the road, I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm starting to feel better. I'm starting to feel like I'm healing from this. And then it was on the three-year anniversary, actually, of when my mother died that my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And he didn't have any history of heart problems and was healthy. So And very eerie and similar way, like I had lost my mother. He was here one minute and he was gone the next. And to lose two people that were really close to me in such strange and tragic circumstances that it was so sudden and unexpected, it it really did a number on me, of course. And again, I had to do a lot of soul searching to figure out, okay, how do you become stronger? And One of the things I had realized over the years was sometimes it wasn't always about what people did. Sometimes it was about what they didn't do. And as a therapist, I'm trained in teaching people all of the strategies that they should use to build on their strengths. But it also occurred to me that we're doing people a disservice if we don't talk about their weaknesses. Um, For example, if somebody went to see a nutritionist and the nutritionist said, eat more vegetables, but then didn't say, don't eat any more junk food, somebody probably isn't going to lose weight. And I felt like, you know, as a therapist, I don't want to do that. I don't want to just tell people, here's all the great things you should do and then ignore the bad habits that they have. And um, so that really became something that I worked on in my personal life too. But I also started to change the way that I practiced a little bit. And um, it took a long time before the fog of grief started to lift. But um, a few years down the road, I started to feel like I was starting a, a different sort of a life for myself as a single person. And I was fortunate enough to fall in love again. And I got remarried and decided to to move out of the house I'd been living in, moved to a new area, got a new job. But shortly after that happened, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And unlike when I'd lost my mother and my husband, and it was really sudden, this time I knew it was coming. So that was different for me because I said, okay, here's somebody else that's become a really prominent figure in my life and I'm going to lose that person and I was just filled with dread and fear and self-pity and all these emotions and and so I sat down and that's when I wrote my list of all the things mentally strong people don't do and it was really just a letter to myself of all the things that would hold me back while I went through this and um if I if I allowed them to and so then I thought okay I have this list when I was done I had 13 things and I said well maybe I'll publish it online we'll see I find it helpful maybe somebody else will and so I published the 13 things mentally strong people don't do on the web and then it went viral and I never intended for it to turn into a book or to become anything else it just how it unfolded but it was an interesting time in my life because as my article was going viral nobody knew why the article didn't say anything about my personal life but we were dealing with my father-in-law's death he died about two weeks after I wrote the article. So our family was privately grieving, but at the same time, national news channels were calling and asking to interview me about mental strength. And that's the story of how the how the article came to be.
0: I mean, I first just have to thank you both for the vulnerability there of sharing your story and the grief you went through. And then also thank you personally. We mentioned uh, in the pre-call, uh, I've, I've dealt with a lot of loss this past year. So your article was a huge help, both with me and my family. So I appreciate that. And thank you for that. So you mentioned the three-year anniversary of your mom's death and unexpectedly losing your husband. Can you kind of just take us back to that exact moment and just exactly what you were feeling at that time and how you did deal with that?
1: It was the most surreal thing. So we had tried to figure out what we were going to do that weekend because when you lose somebody, sometimes birthdays, anniversaries, those things are tough. And we had said, you know, what do we, we want to do um, now that it's been three years? and uh, Some friends had invited us to go to a basketball game. And then strangely, uh, that was the last place I'd seen my mom. And the night before she died was the same specific auditorium. But we decided, hey, maybe that would be a good way to honor her memory. So we went to the game and thought, okay. We were able to talk about her and sort of laugh and thought, you know, it feels good. Like it was healing to say, okay, we've been back there now. And then on the after shortly after we got home that night, my husband just said he didn't feel well and I didn't think anything of, of the time, but a few minutes later he had collapsed and I had to call 911 and he got rushed to the hospital and I didn't even know I had no idea what had happened and the paramedics had asked me questions too. They were thinking maybe it was an allergic reaction or um, you know if he had any types of allergies or if he took any medications and no, he didn't have any of those things. And I called his parents. They met me at the hospital and we waited in the waiting room and I wasn't even sure what to tell them. And it had all happened so fast. I didn't even have any real words to say whether it was a seizure or he passed out or what, what had happened. But, um, we waited and waited and finally the doctor came out and said he wanted to take us out back to talk to us. So, and I had used to work at this hospital coincidentally for years. And so I assumed he was going to take us out back to, speak to Lincoln, but instead he took us to this other room. And then I knew right then and there that they don't sit you down in a private room to share good news with you. And it was just so eerily similar to what had happened when, when the doctor had sat us down and told us about my mom as well. And he just said, Lincoln didn't make it. And with that one sentence, you know, I went from Lincoln and I had been foster parents and we were planning to adopt a child. And in that one moment, I went from planning to adopt the child to planning his funeral and it was the most surreal thing to now think he's gone in a split second i was just talking to him an hour ago and it really took a long time for it to to sink in you know it was one of those after like a few days of going through all this stuff it was like still in the back of my mind like when i get to talk to him again i'm gonna tell him about whatever it was or or he'll think that something was funny or took a really long time for it to really sink in that I would never be able to talk to him about all these other things that had happened. And, and as a therapist too, I thought, you know, I can't go to work when I am dealing with all of this right now. I was fortunate that I was able to take a couple of months off from work, um, to privately just get some affairs and order paperwork and that sort of thing. But it was a really dark time in my life. And I'm so grateful that I have um, I had wonderful friends and family and supportive people who, who really rallied around me and helped me through all of that. But grief is one of those things that nobody can really help you with. Sometimes people try to cheer you up or people really want to be helpful, but there's not much that people can do other than just be there for you. And it was a matter of figuring out how do you go through this? I knew that time doesn't necessarily heal stuff. It's what you do with that time. And it was all about allowing myself to be sad and to be angry and to Feel lonely and to go through all of those emotions in hopes that someday I'd also feel all the positive emotions again—happiness and joy—and and and to be able to to laugh without feeling guilty and so many of those things that we just take for granted when life is going well and when you hit those hard times, it's a matter of figuring out—is it uh, how do you how do you go through it? And my tendency was to just try to escape or distract myself or find something else to do, but uh, those things are only only provide a few minutes of relief you really just have to allow yourself to go through it but it was the most surreal experience then to not have my mother or my husband and feel like life had completely flipped upside down and I had to find my way out without being able to talk to either of them.
0: Did you turn to writing a lot at that time?
1: Um, No actually I didn't write until a little bit later on um, uh, sort of when I probably within the next year or so after he had Passed away. Writing became my side hustle out of necessity. I um, didn't want to move. I didn't want to change. felt like everything in my life had changed. But there was a certain few things that I wanted to keep the same. Uh, I wanted to keep his car. I wanted to keep the house. And so, as a therapist, you can only work so many hours a week. Um, So I decided I needed to do something on the side to feel a little bit more financially secure. And so I decided to start writing as a way to make money because I could do that at night and on the weekends. Um, And I just made just a little bit. I didn't make tons of money, but I made a little bit of money that way. And so it wasn't in the beginning I wrote about just about anything from random articles about gardening to something about shipping ports. It wasn't (laughs) anything that was therapeutic in any way. It was just a, a means to earn a little bit of extra money.
0: Oh, I got you. No, I I just heard a lot of people deal with deal with grief um, with the process of writing. So I wasn't sure if that's how you got connected with that. But it turns out it was a side hustle. So That's fascinating. So when you go and you actually write 13 things mentally strong people don't do, you write it as a personal letter to yourself, essentially. What did you think when you were initially going to publish the article? Did you think anything was really going to come of it? Or was it just going to be another article some people read?
1: Yeah, I figured it was just going to be another article some people read. I'd written by then probably thousands of articles over the years. None of them went viral, but none of them were a personal letter to myself either. You know, this is the first time I'd ever done anything like that. But, but I thought, it, you know, I'd written about mental health and psychology a little bit here and there are relationships. So I just thought, oh, I'll publish it and we'll see what happens. But never in a million years did I imagine it would, it would blow up and be read by millions of people.
0: Yeah. 50 million people later, it's it's a phenomenon to tell you the truth. I know a lot of my listeners uh, have read the article. You are one of the most requested guests uh, we've ever had. So I'm definitely going to link that up in the show notes. But for the people who have not read this, do you want to pick out a few of your favorite ones and just kind of highlight them?
1: Sure. You know, the first one on the list is that mentally strong people don't feel sorry for themselves. And that was because that's exactly where I was when I wrote this list is I was thinking, you know, this isn't fair. And you shouldn't have to lose another loved one. and you know one of the things I had learned over the years in therapy too is that self-pity is much different than sadness that when you're it's good to be sad, that's healing. it's okay to be angry or disappointed and to grieve. all of those things are healthy, but self-pity is when you start to compare your problems to other people's or when you start to think that your life is way worse than anybody else's and sort of causes you to dig in your heels and think, you know, I'm not, I can't do anything about this, so I'm not going to, and it really makes you dwell on the problem and stop looking for solutions, and so at that moment, that's why that one topped my list, because I was definitely in that place of starting to feel sorry for myself, but I knew that pity parties don't help, um, and another one, that probably of all the 13 things people want to talk about the most is um, number two, which is that mentally strong people don't give away their power, and that one is really about saying nobody else can control how I think, feel, or behave. And I think it just becomes such a habit sometimes to say, my mother-in-law makes me feel bad about myself, or I have to go to work tomorrow. And we say these things as if we're being forced to do them. And of course, if you didn't go to work, there's consequences for, for not showing up. Maybe you'll lose your job and you won't earn any money, but it's a choice just recognizing, okay, the things that I do in my life are a choice is really quite empowering. And it doesn't, it takes away that idea that other people have some sort of control over you, but we're fortunate in that as adults, we get to do pretty much whatever we want from the time we wake up till the time we go to bed and you following the laws and doing things you're supposed to do and going to work. Those are all things that you choose to do and you don't have to. And sometimes just switching your language can make a a big difference in the way that you think about life overall. And same with the way that you feel. I think too often it's tempting to give other people the power to control how you feel. If somebody's in a bad mood. It doesn't have to drag you down. Or if somebody says something critical of you. It doesn't have to affect your self-worth. And for us to just take back that power is, can be quite freeing.
0: Yeah, number two on your list, they don't give away their power has had the most profound impact on me. Um, that's, that's one on the list I constantly look back to. So let's put this in context for someone. I know your book gives you ways to deal with a lot of these scenarios, but how about someone who is constantly involved with people who are putting them down, um, being stressed out over things that in the grand scheme of things shouldn't be stressful. How do they deal with people like that that are really taking away their power?
1: A couple of things. Sometimes if... Sometimes it's about limiting your contact with people, and that might mean your neighbor, your friend, or a family member who is overly negative all the time, and to set some limits. Sometimes you can't necessarily limit your contact with, say, a coworker because it's not your choice to to sit next to the person. And if you want to keep your job, that might be what you have to deal with. So sometimes then it's a matter of just switching the conversation. If you have somebody who is always talking about how horrible it is to work there bring up something positive about, about working there or make it clear. I like my job. You don't have to get dragged into venting and complaining too. Or sometimes you can have an upfront conversation with somebody that says it's really hard to sit next to you all day when all you do is talk about all of the negative things. I think there are a lot of positive things to talk about. And I think with kids, sometimes people, their kids get dragged into thinking life is terrible, horrible, and awful. And sometimes it's just a matter of saying, well, tell me the best part about your day. And to just change the focus. So if you sit around the dinner table at night and everybody's complaining, to just try to say, Well, tell me one good thing that happened today or what was the highlight of the day and to just try to change it so that we can be a little more a little more positive and to make a conscious effort to say, Okay, no matter what kind of mood people are in or what they're talking about, I can control what goes on in my own head. I don't have to get sucked up into it.
0: No, I love that refocus and focusing more on the positive and then also how you change the context of things. I think so many people see a problem or a coworker that they don't like dealing with and they just can change the context where you say, what happens if you don't show up to work tomorrow? Obviously, there's consequences, but you control those scenarios and there are other options. I mean, you're the master at mental strength. So to you, what is mental strength?
1: There's three parts to it. So it's about number one is regulating your thoughts because you don't want to think, overly negative all the time, because that will drag you down. But you also don't want to be overly positive. I think sometimes people confuse mental strength for positive thinking, but you don't want to walk into a situation always thinking, I've got this handled, or I'm going to win. Because then sometimes you don't prepare. So if somebody said the test is going to be easy, I'm going to get a 100 on it, but then they don't study for it. it leaves you unprepared. You just want to be realistic. It's okay to say, to acknowledge your limitations, or to say, this was really hard, or I'm going to have a hard time with something. So to be able to say, how do you assess your thoughts and figure out which ones are realistic, which ones have some um, logic behind them? That's the first part. The second part is about managing your emotions. So often it's easy to say, well, I I woke up on the wrong side of the bed, so I'm going to have a bad day. Or that person brings out the worst in me and I get angry. But you really have to say how do you be more aware of your emotions? And I think a lot of times people think that mental strength is about suppressing your emotions or ignoring them, but that's not true. It's really about saying, how do I feel and how do those emotions affect my behavior and how do they affect my decisions? Once you can be more aware of that to know that when you're anxious, you might shy away from something or when you're sad, you might not negotiate very well or whatever it is, but Sometimes just being aware of your emotions is key to managing them. And then to sometimes take the conscious effort of saying, I'm in a bad mood and I just want to sit inside and sulk, that's going to make my mood worse. So I'm going to go outside and go for a walk, even though that's not what I feel like. But um, it's really about being in control of your emotions so your emotions don't control you. And the third part is about behaving productively, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. And sometimes it's pushing yourself to do something you don't want to do if you're afraid but you know that taking this step is good for you it's about saying okay i'm going to i'm going to take that step or when you don't feel like doing something but it's a good thing to do for somebody else maybe to be able to say okay i'm going to do this because it would be helpful to me or helpful to this other person it's an important thing to do and it's just about making those choices every day of okay Here's the good habits I want to establish in my life. And here's the bad habits I want to get rid of. And even when I don't feel motivated, I'm going to keep trying to strive for them anyway. So it's really those three components. And sometimes for all of us, some are easier than others. And parts of it, we think, okay, I've got this down, but I don't have this one down. And it's really the three of them really work together. So you really have to figure out how do you, how do you work on all three of those things so you can become your strongest
0: self. Yeah, all three definitely do coexist. And you mentioned preparation, and I'm curious to get your take on this. So one of the reoccurring themes I've seen across highly successful people is their confidence. Can you talk about people are able to have better confidence and what preparation, uh, what plays into that?
1: Sure, I think, you know, to be, sometimes people think confidence is just about about not feeling fear at all or to, to just be able to do things even when it feels scary. That can be part of it, but I think for confident people are also people that that think about things ahead of time. So if it if they do have a performance coming up that they're practicing, even though practicing is boring, it's uncomfortable, and it's not a, a lot of fun, they do it anyway. And that they're thinking ahead, you know, that short term thinking that a lot of people have where they can't think about anything past what they're going to eat for lunch today, it keeps them stuck. But when you can really say, okay, what are the things I need to do? How can I be ready for it? And for a lot of people, there's a pride in saying, oh, I didn't study at all. Or, oh, I didn't have to work for this when they succeed. But I think truly confident people are able to say, you know, I've been studying for three weeks and here's the result. And and there's also that fear of failure that confident people, I think truly confident people know that, If I fail, I'll still be okay. I can handle failure because they're confident in their ability to handle distress. Whereas people that are not as confident, sometimes they're so terrified of failing that they don't want to try or they don't want to admit that they tried. So to truly be successful, I think you have to be really comfortable with your emotions and know it's okay to be scared. It's okay if you do fail, it's going to be sad or it'll be embarrassing or disappointing, but that's okay too. And when you just get really comfortable in your own skin, you can go on and accomplish pretty incredible things.
0: So many great bullet points there. I love how you hit on failure. That's something that's a reoccurring theme across all of our guests here at What Got You There. And they mentioned their ability to embrace failure and also learn from that. I love also how you're talking about the fear side of things and doing new things. When we talked about mental strength, one of the three things was challenging yourself. So what I want to know is you write this viral article now. And before you know it, you're getting asked to do interviews, and then all of a sudden you're asked to do a TEDx talk. Uh, your TEDx talk, which we'll have linked up in the show notes, has over 3 million views now. So you're someone who's claimed to be an introvert and we're afraid of public speaking. So when you get approached by TED to do this talk, can you talk about your mindset and then how you overcame your fear to give an amazing speech?
1: Well, you did your homework on me, didn't you? Good job. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so well, right after my article went viral, I started to get phone calls from organizations and companies and um people who wanted me to speak. and as a I'm a social worker by trade, as a social worker, when we do speaking engagements, it's usually you talk to maybe fifty people in a small setting, and um it's usually about something mental health related or something that we do on a regular basis. So, at first, I was just blown away, and the idea of getting on a big stage at a conference that could be in front of thousands of people was—I just couldn't fathom it. And so, one of the first things I did was I hired a speaking coach to say, "Hey, I need help." <laughs> and I was also thinking, you know, I—I just—I don't know the first thing about about speaking, and how do you uh, talk about, you know, the thirteen things without just coming up with a bullet-pointed list? And I just didn't want to reread the article, so it was really about doing the things I needed to do. I knew that I wasn't going to be a prolific speaker if I didn't get any help. And it's something I continue to to work on. But um, So by the time the TEDx opportunity came along, I had done a fair amount of speaking already. And so I had done different interviews on stages or I had spoken at conferences and companies and had really gotten used to A crowd, but I knew there's something a little bit different about speaking at a a TED event because it gets uh, taped, and then you know it's going to appear online and it's going to live on the internet forever. So there's a little bit of a different kind of oppression (laughs) because I think I was thinking anyway. If I get up in front of a a crowd in a normal circumstance and you completely embarrass yourself, well, those people in the audience know, but nobody else does. But if you do something on the TEDx stage and it comes out terrible, then it's going to be on the internet and for anybody to look at forever. So there's a different sort of a vibe of, Oh no. And, and so again, I, when TEDx said they had heard me on an interview um, for success magazine, the organizer for TEDx. And she said, we'd really love to have you speak. And I thought, okay. Um, you know, it took a few minutes to really think about do do I I that. Um, and then just, you know, said, absolutely. I'm going to go for it. And it was a, different experience than a lot of the other speaking I had done and um, but it was a lot of fun it was definitely a, a fun and wonderful opportunity to be able to do it and then of course you hold your breath when it comes out because you have no idea how like when the book comes out and you don't know if anybody's going to read it or what they're going to say so when your TEDx video comes out you think I don't know if anybody's going to watch it and if they do what are what are they going to say about it and is anybody going to enjoy this and so then spends a few weeks of waiting to see and then once people start watching it and of course reactions aren't always positive but that's okay um but then to watch it balloon into more than three million views has just been incredible if somebody would have told me when i was 17 that someday i'd give a speech that was watched by three million people i wouldn't have believed it for a, a second it was just not something that would have been in my wheelhouse at all but um I've come to enjoy speaking now. I I actually really enjoy speaking to to different organizations. And I'm much like most things in life. It's just a matter of practice and exposure. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes.
0: I mean, you seem like a savvy vet during that time. So it's so fascinating hearing your mindset about the whole process leading up to it. And then also the execution and then waiting for that video to release. So just before you go on stage, is there anything you do to calm your nerves? Or do you just kind of walk across the stage and start going?
1: Um, you know, I guess I, I'm backstage. I'm taking a few deep breaths, just reminding myself my tendency, my normal tendency would be to try to go through all of my points of what I want to talk about. But at that point, I either know it or I don't. So I just remind myself that's not helpful. <laughs> and just to take a few deep breaths and try to remind myself to just enjoy this and who else gets to stand on front of a stage and and speak to a crowd of people that that's not something everybody gets to do of course it's not something everybody wants to do but that this isn't what I wanted in life this isn't the path that I chose but sort of it this is how it all unfolded and to just enjoy the crazy ride that I'm on and to to have fun while I'm doing it and that really helps me keep my mindset in the right place otherwise I, I would tend to take it too so serious that I would be so afraid of messing up that I would force my become a self-fulfilling prophecy and I would end up messing up. So I just remind myself it's okay. And that um, all I can do is my best.
0: So you said if if someone told your 17 year old self that you'd be speaking and have a video of over 3 million views, you'd be pinching yourself and never believe it. But a story I heard about you was you're the valedictorian of your high school, which requires you to give the speech at graduation. Um, I heard a funny story about what a group of your friends did to help you overcome that fear while giving that speech. Can you share that story with my listeners?
1: Sure. In high school, I was probably one of the, if not the shyest kid in class. I always sat in the back row and never raised my hand. And even in my English class, if we were going to read our papers, then my English teacher would read them for me. And this was when I was 17 and had grown up with these same kids. I went to a really small high school. So it was the same 20 kids that I'd gone to kindergarten with that were pretty, probably in my same high school English class, but I was just extremely shy. And so when they announced that I was the valedictorian and would have to give this speech, it was, I was just frozen. I said, I can't get up on a stage and give a speech in front of a crowd of people, but it really wasn't an option where they said, no, you have to do this. And it's just what all the valedictorians do every year. And so uh, as I was trying to figure out what am I going to say, what am I going to talk about, I was just so afraid of messing up or, you know, had all these strange fears that my I wouldn't have any kind of voice. I wouldn't be able to speak there that, you know, I'd trip going up there and all of these things that really kept me from even being able to think about what I would talk about. And so I got together with some of my very best friends since childhood and said, all right, I'm going to need some help. you guys." <laughs> When I'm done, no matter how bad it comes out and if you can't even hear a word that I said, I just want you to stand up and, and cheer like you were just at a rock concert. And they're like, okay, that <laughs> will No questions <laughs> dad. And so then as soon as I sort of made that shift, I thought, okay, as long as I know that a couple of people in the audience are going to cheer for me when I'm done, I can move forward. It was the strangest thing, but it really made this shift in my mind that then I could concentrate on figuring out what I was going to say. And I was terrified the entire time. I think, I don't think I remember anything about graduation other than I was trying not to have a panic attack before (laughs) I stepped on the stage. But, and sure enough, when I was done, my best friends in the world stood up just like they, you know, were in the audience for the most marvelous concert ever. And they cheered. And of course, when a couple people stand up, the rest of the audience stands up too. So I get a standing ovation and I think, whew, (laughs) got that one done.
0: No, that is a great story.
1: And that was, you know, the sort of the secret to to getting through it. It was probably the most (laughs) terrifying thing, maybe even to this day that I've ever done, was having to get up there because it wasn't something I would normally do and wouldn't choose to do. So at that point, yes, if somebody said, hey, by the way, someday you're going to give a speech to 3 million people, I I don't know, I probably wouldn't have dared leave the house ever again.
0: Oh, well, that's a fantastic group of friends you have. And then you also mentioned during your tough times, how important that close group of family and friends were to you. What do you think about that? I know a lot of talks now uh, deal with the tribe you surround yourself with. How influential do you think that is and important it is having a group like that?
1: I think it's huge. And I was fortunate that growing up in a small town, sort of the the friends that I made, um, I've kept for life. I, one of my friends just flew down to visit me last week, in fact. But In a small town, you don't really have a choice. If you get in a fight with your friends, there aren't really other people you can make friends with. So you end up, your friends sort of become like your siblings over the years because you're stuck with them. And because of that, we always remain close. And even when we went to different colleges and we lived in different states, we've always um, stayed really close to one another. And so when, when I lost my mother and then when I lost my husband, my friends definitely rallied around me. And even, you know, my friend's spouse's, and, um, and Lincoln's friends that weren't necessarily always my friends, his coworkers, and that sort of a thing. They also came around and family members too, but it was huge. And just in knowing that I wasn't completely alone and the strange thing that happened was, so I took three months off from work after Lincoln died. And for those three months, I never ate lunch alone. It wasn't anything that was ever planned far as I know my friends and, and Lincoln's coworkers never planned it out or anything but somebody called every day and would say do you want to have lunch and never planned it out but I never for those three months just randomly uh, somebody would ask me and I never had to sit and eat lunch alone and I never have quite figured out exactly how or why that happened but it's an incredible thing to just be able to to know that i wasn't just going to sit at home by myself all day long but to just have something to look forward to and somebody to talk to um on a daily basis was huge and i think it is true that when you have people in your life who can be genuinely happy for you when good things happen but also won't run away when bad things happen because i think it's uncomfortable sometimes when people are going through tough times we don't know what to say we don't know what to do we don't know how to help and it's tempting to just steer clear or to say i'll give that person some space but that's when people need you the most. But then when good things happen, too, to not be resentful or jealous, but to be able to cheer alongside them and congratulate them and just genuinely be happy for it. That if you can have those people in your life, it's really helpful then to be able to get through no matter whatever life throws your way.
0: I mean, you mentioned how powerful that was when your friends wouldn't allow you to be alone for a few months. And for some reason, that just froze me and just made me think of how lucky you were to have that group to help you during that time in your life. So that was very cool to hear. So thanks for sharing that. So after you write this book, the article, you have the TED Talk, what major changes in your life have you made? Anything?
1: Yeah, I guess a few. So after um, after the book came out, um, or after the article came out, a literary agent had called and said, you should write a book. and be honest I didn't even know what a literary agent was and it had never occurred to me to write a book but within I wrote the article in November and by January we had a book deal with one of the biggest publishers in the world and so at first my life didn't change that much I dropped some of my writing side hustles and I kept working as a therapist and wrote on the wrote my book um, on the my days off and and then was getting speaking engagements but I would try to do them around my work schedule as a therapist. And I did that for a long time after the book came out. I was still doing that. And then at some point decided, well, is it possible I could write another book? Is there a, Am I a therapist who just wrote one viral article and it turned into a book or could I make it as an author? And so I took a sabbatical My because I live in a small town as a therapist. I was hesitant to quit my job. I love my job. And I thought, you know, I don't want to give this up. And then three months from now I need to work again so I had a conversation with my boss and he said take a sabbatical we'll hold your job when you want to come back someday come back but go do this writing thing and so um took a sabbatical still on a sabbatical I don't know if it what's in the cards for what will happen next but had the opportunity to just write my second book it comes out in September of this year and doing a lot of writing and speaking and um all these interesting opportunities have come my way to make videos for an app or to make a course and to go train companies. And, um, so just sort of take it as it comes and figure out, okay, here are the things I want to do next and we'll see what happens or how this unfolds. But, um, just really trying to enjoy the ride too. I think this all came from one 600 word article and none of it was planned. So to be able to say, and I'm I tend to be a planner, somebody who thinks I have life figured out, you know, by the year and what's going to happen next year. So, It's been an exercise in just saying, let's just see how this unfolds.
0: I I think this is the goal of the conversation. I'm getting goosebumps hearing you talk about this. And what I'm so fascinated by is plenty of people, I guess I wouldn't say plenty of people, but multiple people have written viral articles and it kind of stops there. They aren't able to capitalize and pivot on that success. So what past experiences do you think really allow you to be so successful in multiple fields and different things you're doing now?
1: Well, another interesting thing had happened, um, I guess between after I had started writing and before I wrote the viral article, my second husband and I had started an online e-commerce business and it was just something that he was self-taught and figured out on his own. But we started a jewelry company, um, where we drop shipped jewelry and it taught me a lot about marketing, about creating websites, about lots of things, um, All things online. And I have to say, over the years, that experience that we had with that for several years has been instrumental in teaching me just about, you know, how the internet works and e commerce and selling books and compared to selling jewelry. And there's a lot of similarities in in between all of that. And then because I had been writing for random websites over the years, it also just taught me a lot about um, SEO and marketing and all of those sorts of things, which then later on, when I had a website to know, okay, how do you how do you put all of these things into play so that so that I could make my own website and I could make it so that I could um, talk about my book and where to publish articles about the book um, to drive more traffic to it and so lots of I guess strange and interesting things over the years that all came into came into play but I didn't know in the beginning I thought can I actually even write a book I'm not a I'm not an author I'm a therapist and there were you know, I can write a 600-word article, but I don't know if I can put it all together in a package to make it into a book. And then once the book came out, I thought, okay, I'm all done. And I talked to somebody who was a New York Times bestseller, and he said, oh, no, now your work just begins. And he said, hey, what do you mean? And he said, well, I have to market the book. And I thought, oh, I knew that they gave you a publisher, but I thought, I thought it was really going to be that my publisher did a lot of that. So it was really then news to me that I had to do a lot of the marketing myself and um but because i had done a lot of marketing for other things before when we had our online business it really i think then came into play of okay i know how to do some of this stuff and a lot of it was sort of the same principles behind it and so uh then it just became another a new exercise in figuring out okay how do you how do you sell books just because it lands on the shelf in barnes and noble doesn't mean people buy it you have to talk about it and put it in front of as many people as as you possibly can.
0: No, I mean, you're someone who's constantly reinventing themselves and figuring out new ways to do things. And I could dive into a whole nother podcast with you about marketing, SEO, all of those things. So maybe at some point we can have that conversation. But you're mentioning about your new book. Uh, I know with talking with you, you just finished up some final edits, and I think you just said it's going to be out in September. Can you give my listeners a little preview of what you've just been writing about?
1: Sure. So the biggest question I kept getting from people who read the first book was, how do we teach this to kids? And the most common comment I kept getting from people was, I wish I had learned this earlier. And so I approached my publisher and said, what do you think? And we decided to come out with a parenting book. So 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do is the next book. And I had sort of gone back and forth. Do I write a book for kids or for teenagers or do I write it for the parents? And really decided that the next thing I wanted to do was teach parents. Um, because parents have the most influence. And if your child reads a book about mental strength, and then he puts it down on the shelf and never applies any of it, he's not going to learn. So I really wanted to figure out how do I teach parents to be mental strength coaches? And then you can be right there in the moment. So when your child's having a bad day, or you're tempted to rescue him from his frustration, what is it that you do? And how can you give him exercises to make him mentally stronger? So I came out with Um, the 13 things that really would help parents in the moment um, but to then overall to raise kids who don't do my original 13 things so uh, we talk about how not to give kids say a victim mentality so that they don't grow up to feel sorry for themselves and it's really about instilling these core beliefs in kids and helping them to think and feel and act in a way that will be much more productive and I think so many there's so much parenting advice out there about, you know, helicopter parenting or if you should be a free range parent or, um, but there's nothing out there about how do you raise mentally strong kids. So I'm excited to bring it out into the world and hopefully help parents to raise kids who are going to be ready to tackle the responsibilities of adulthood.
0: That's one of the topics I've been most fascinated on recently. And it's funny, I've been asking most of my guests about their parenting styles because I wanted to learn more about that. So when I heard this is what you were writing about, I was just so fired up and I cannot wait to read that book. And hopefully we can definitely get you on again uh, in September when this releases because I'd love to go into more details on the specifics of the book, but I'd be curious to get your take. What do you think of the American school system right now and how it's developing the youth
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I hear about some schools that are starting to adopt some interesting things. Like um, I just wrote an article actually about some schools that are adopting mindfulness and what happens when schools do that. You know, what happens to their disciplinary action goes way down and the kids tend to stay in school longer, their grades go up, all these incredible things. But I think the school systems are so slow to adopt these ideas, you know, it's been in the hands of the parents that parents should be teaching kids things like anger management or that it's up to parents to teach kids um, all these other skills. And school is just about how do you read and write and do math. But I think we're slowly getting there that school systems and are starting to realize, well, if your child's really good in math, but he has an explosive temper that he can't handle, doesn't matter how good he is in math. Nobody's going to hire him for a job or he's never going to be able to, uh, to work on something and get it done. And so I think we're slowly getting there that we're recognizing, hey, maybe we need to make sure that kids have all of these skills to be re- well-rounded. And um, But it's a long time in getting to that point. I'm hoping that we'll continue to, to get there to realize that, well, parents can definitely do a lot to teach kids at home, but kids are at school all day and that's their opportunity to practice a lot of these skills. And if we had teachers who were well-versed in in helping kids and coaching them and working with kids right there on the spot when they're frustrated with their work or when they're having an argument at recess, um, I think we could do so much better. And I think then kids would be better equipped to, to deal with the real world.
0: No, I thoroughly enjoyed that mindfulness article. We'll make sure we get that linked up because I think my listeners would really enjoy reading that as well. Uh, it was funny how you mentioned about how much of the parents' responsibility it is once they get home from school. And uh, in a past interview, we had Eric Wall on, um, who's a performance artist, and he does a similar thing. Uh, he His kids go to school, but the way he approached it was when they got home, he could instill so many great values and so many lessons in them. So it's cool hearing you talk about that. So I want to pivot now and just kind of hit on a few quick questions for you. So, what is one thing in your life right now you'd like to change?
1: Hmm. I would probably say. I'd like to make exercise more consistent. I kind of just do it whenever I want to and it's most days of the week but sometimes it's in the morning sometimes it's at night and now that I'm in Florida it's kind of dependent on the weather but I guess I would like to make it um, more consistent that I run
0: and work out. Do you have a specific mindfulness practice?
1: Um, I really enjoy, I just got into a little while ago Headspace, the app that um, does mindfulness Um, but it's something that over the years I've taught with lots of therapy clients and worked on meditation and again just having an an app that reminds you to do it is something that's helpful Um, but I enjoy lots of different things when it comes to yoga and meditation and I guess I like the variety too of trying new things and figuring out what skills work in the moment and what skills are things you should do on a regular basis to help more in the long term.
0: Do you think you're constantly seeing yourself kind of change and evolve? You mentioned trying new things at different times. I feel like it's almost seasonal for me where I'll adapt one practice and then a few months later, that time of year, I'm doing something else. Do you see the same thing?
1: I do, and I think I'm somebody that likes the variety of being able to do different things at different times and to know, okay, if if I do these things now, this is helpful, and then what else is out there? And to try something new so that I don't just get stuck Doing the same thing or assuming this is as good as it gets, but it's okay to go out and experiment. I think life is a series of experiments. You might as well figure out which ones work the best for you.
0: Oh, I love that approach to life. So you mentioned when you were preparing for your TEDx talk, uh, you hired a coach, actually. So who are you learning from today, and what are they teaching you?
1: Um, you know, I try to learn. I try. It's, I guess, an interesting thing. I try not to watch uh too many say ted talks because i think then i don't want to just copy other people's style but to know that i have my own style and it's different than other people's and and that's okay so it's a matter of figuring out how can i learn speaking tips how can i learn about uh, strategies and how do i without just becoming a second-rate copycat just <laughs> know that i'm somebody who you know my sense of humor is a little bit different or my speaking styles a little bit different that doesn't make it better or worse it's just different and so finding that line of knowing that i there's always things to learn i can always become lots better but at the same time i don't have to copy anybody so i learned from a variety of people
0: so have you had any ideas that you've changed in the past year because of learning something new
1: yeah well i guess one thing is um over the years i've heard so many people talk about the freedom of being say a minimalist and uh, I always, the people that I've heard talk about it, for the most part, are people that are sort of talking constantly about being a minimalist, <laughs> so I think, well, how? <laughs> it was that great something you do and not necessarily something that you have to, wouldn't be at the forefront of your life like it had taken over? But um, in my journey of moving to the Florida Keys, I live on a boat. I don't have a lot of stuff on a boat, and I have to say. It, to not have much stuff, I don't need, you know, I don't have 17 kitchen appliances and 25 different um, gadgets that do the same thing. It's just, I have a laptop and some clothes and a few things, necessities, but that's it. And I have to say, that's very freeing to not have all the extra stuff that, that I don't need anymore.
0: No, that's very cool to hear. And you mentioned going from Maine to the Florida Keys. How does that actually happen? I mean, that's a pretty big jump just to go from Maine to the Florida Keys. Was that a one night thing where like, Hey, we're going to do this. Or was this over a few months of you guys talking about it, that it finally came to fruition?
1: Um, you know, over the years, um, my current husband and I, we had both been to the Florida Keys. We just never been together. And, but we both really enjoyed it. And he had found this, um, some sort of like neat places in the Keys to live and, um, marinas where you could keep a boat and that sort of a thing. And so it had been something that had been on our radar long before we had the means to do it. And so then sort of when it became, when we were both able to work remotely and we were able to financially make the shift, we said, yeah, oh, let's go for it. And, um, just decided to take the plunge.
0: Oh, no, that's awesome. So final question before we link my uh, listeners up with you, but what are you most passionate about in your life right now?
1: Hmm. I guess about so, uh, just making the world a stronger place. One of the things I realized is my book has been sold all around the world is how fortunate we are here in the United States to have access to uh, mental health information and and ideas about mental strength. And we have books and I get emails from people all around the world from Ethiopia or the Sudan who want to know more about mental strength. And when I do free online seminars, they'll show up and ask questions. And they really don't have access to things that we take for granted, like therapy or a library and i think you know how interesting and my goal is to just say how do we talk more about how do you how do you take better control of your mind how do you train your brain to think differently and if i can help people from all corners of the planet well then i would definitely feel like my job was well done and i think for me right now that's just a, a area that i'm passionate about is how do you just simple questions that people have from other countries and they don't dare ask them out loud. Um, But to be able to give them that information is just
0: huge for me. Well, thank you for your passion into that because we are so lucky right now. Like I mentioned, when I dealt with some great losses this past year, I came across your stuff and it was a tremendous help. So I really appreciate that. So I'm sure my listeners are just dying to figure out where they can connect with you. uh, Stay up to all things you're working on. You want to direct them anywhere specifically?
1: Sure. My website is amymorin.com lcsw is in licensed clinical social worker.com. And on there, I have a link to my TED talk and my book and lots of articles and, um, I an e-course and, but there's a bunch of free resources on there as well.
0: Yeah. We'll make sure we get all of that linked up in the show notes. And like I mentioned before, uh, when your new book comes out, I would love to get you back on and talk about that. Cause that's a fascinating topic. And I know the info you have in that book is going to be tremendous. So thanks again for joining us on what got you there. Oh, thanks for having me. What got you there with What got you there with What got you there with What got you there Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.